Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Sajel Hafi. But first, we'd like to check in on current topics in health and healthcare. Harlan, what's, what's on your mind this week? Well, Howie, I'm, you know, you're going to get tired of this. Like we, you know, when the pandemic was raging, every week we'd be talking about the pandemic. I'm still stuck on these large language models, the chat GPTs of the world. And I had the privilege of being at a closed meeting in London this week with a lot of people with expertise and, and was learning so much about this. And it's got me still obsessed with how this is going to impact medicine and what the right places are. Our colleague, uh, uh, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who was on with us, you know, you may have seen recently talked about a survey he did at one of his meetings where he had 119 CEOs, 90% of them said they didn't think that the, the, the opportunity of AI is overstated. They actually think it's immense. But about 40% of them said they thought AI could destroy humanity within the next decade. I mean, that was mind boggling in itself. I mean, it has nothing to do with the meeting I was at. But, but when Jeff came out with that, 40% of these CEOs I saw that. It's crazy. said that they were concerned it could destroy humanity within the next decade. That, that to me seems overstatement. But even if it's 1%, that's a concern. Forty percent uh, are another person we've had on the podcast. Uh, Eric Topol was writing about a research letter that was in JAMA that took a bunch of cases in medicine. What we do sometimes is we'll assemble the facts of a case and present it to an expert as a way of, of teaching us how an expert thinks and and also as some showmanship to see whether or not someone can when yeah. presented with something that's quite complex and and convoluted and far from obvious whether they can reason themselves through to the answer and and there was a research letter in JAMA that basically took a bunch of these they the, the New England Journal of Medicine publishes every week one of these from Mass, Massachusetts General Hospital this is a long long tradition that they've done and something that we all grew up on where a really, 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 really hard case, something that seems insolvable is presented to a really, really, really smart person. And then, you know, we sort of see whether or not the person figures it out in the end. And most of us mere mortals are, you know, fumbling our way through this, trying to figure out what this could be. And, you know, often the person who's presented this will come up with the answer. Uh, if not the answer, often it'll at least be on a list of things they say are possibilities. And and not uncommonly, even the most expert person in the world, you know, fails to really come up with the right answer, in part because, you know, they're, they're not all typical features of a particular condition. And so it sort of leads them in, on, on the wrong path. So naturally, somebody came up with the idea, let's take these and feed them into to chat GPT-4 and see, see how they do. And of course, maybe not uh, surprisingly, given that we've seen the chat GPT-4 can pass the medical boards and answer a whole range of questions, even though it wasn't built specifically on medical knowledge, that it actually did uh, uh, pretty well. Um, now, you know, that doesn't mean it answered all the things right, but no, neither do, do average uh, physicians be put in a position uh, are able to do that either. And, uh, you know, so then Eric goes on to sort of opine about, you know, what's the right place for this? Where does it fit? The authors of the articles were, were, were tweeting that you know, this is really ready for testing in real world situations to sort of figure out what it can do and, and realize that, that ChatGPT4 is still just the first half of the first inning. I mean, we are still in the very beginning of this and yet, yet these are so powerful. 
One of the things I saw uh, at this meeting that, uh, and you know, we've heard about before are these so-called a hallucination and a discussion of what are called hallucinations from these models. And what, what hallucinations are, are, are sort of answers that are made up. So, you know, there was a case of somebody and uh, there was a description of what was in the medical record. And then ChatGPT was asked to summarize that record. And some of the facts of the summary were actually made up. And, and part of the discussion that we had was, is this a feature or a bug? Obviously, in this particular case, you don't want it making up facts about a patient. But if you appreciate the creativity of ChatGPT, when you say, you know, t tell, write me a poem about something and then and now do it in the form of a Shakespearean sonnet. And it, it can actually generate something quite novel that's never been seen before. You know, in that case, it's a feature. And then when it actually takes a, a, a patient case and, and in a way speculates about a fact, in this case, it, it speculated on a body mass index that was probably close to what the patient's real body mass index was, but it wasn't in anywhere in the record. And so, you know, we, we, we decry that, that as sort of a hallucination. And so there was a large scale discussion about, you know, where are we going to be able to trust this? Can you actually somehow, you know, tune it so that it's not going to, to be creating wrong information? What, you know, where's the best place to be, be putting this? But I remain remarkably enthusiastic about the possibilities and believe that it can be transformative and not ChatGPT alone. But ChatGPT in the proper workflow as a co-pilot to healthcare professionals, and as a me and as an assist to patients in ways that can help everyone achieve better performance. It's just going to be a matter of finding the right place for this and being sure that we're guarding against unintended adverse consequences. But it, it remains a very fascinating story to me. Yeah, we're going to learn a lot over the next year. It's going to be a very steep learning curve for everybody and. I think the best uh, advice that you can have about it now is to be a little bit cautious and not to, you know, overextend what we what we know into the future until we can start to see where it goes. Hey, Howie, let's get to the the main course here with uh, our guest, and uh, so excited to to have her here today. So why don't you go ahead, Dr. Sajel Hathi is the former senior policy advisor for public health at the White House. She'll soon start as New Jersey's health officer and deputy commissioner of health. An internal medicine physician, she's an assistant professor and joint faculty member at both Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Among her many achievements, Dr. Hafi has founded and led two nonprofits that have collectively empowered over 30,000 young women globally, has served on numerous boards and advisory groups, including the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's Expert Advisory Group on Women's and Children's Health, and produced and hosted the health equity-centered podcast, Civic Rx during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Hafi holds a BS from Yale University, where I first had the privilege of meeting her 13 years ago, and an MD-MBA from Stanford University, where she studied as a Harry S. Truman Scholar and Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. She completed her residency at Massachusetts General Hospital and served as a clinical fellow at Harvard Medical School. So first, I, I want to welcome you, but in preparation for this, I did look back at the letter of recommendation that I was fortunate enough to write for you 11 years ago. And oh my God, you have fulfilled everything that I could have ever hoped for. You are 
an enormous success. You are a clinician. You are a leader in public health. Uh, you remain connected to the same spaces that you were passionate about back then. And so I want to first start off and ask you about this journey, about your passion for well-being and for mental health that started, I think, maybe even in high school, that you've developed this passion for it and have continued to work toward improving the well-being of society. Um, so first of all, welcome to the, to the podcast, Sajel. Thanks so much, Howie. And to answer your, your first question, um, Howie, I'll say that you're absolutely right. Um, this, this journey did commence many years ago, more than half a lifetime ago at the age of 14, 15, um, when I was a high school student in the Bay Area, California. And my journey um, flowed from my own personal experience, my own personal struggle with the healthcare issue. And so when I was 15, I was diagnosed with an eating disorder, anorexia. And I should share that I come from a very traditional Indian American family. My parents um, were both born and raised in East Africa, came to this country as, as refugees, knowing um, very little English, having um, very little sense of the healthcare system, let alone what eating disorders such as anorexia was. And so for the longest period of time for them, as well as for me, myself, this was a very uh, difficult uh, diagnosis to accept and, and grapple with. Uh, and it was really my years long journey toward recovery um, that one uh, inspired me to want to pay it forward in the same way that my physicians held my hand and pulled me and my family um, through those hard years. I wanted to be, do, be able to do the same for young people like myself. And it also taught me the uh, indispensable, really foundational role of health to achieving self-actualization. Uh, and I knew that one could not possibly aspire to the types of impact that I wanted to achieve without first uh, being healthy herself. And I never wanted that absence of health to be a, a barrier for, for others like me. And then thirdly, and I think related to, to public health and my interest in population health, I, I, I recognize that um, the our, our healthcare disorders or healthcare conditions like anorexia, like others, are really patterned by the, the social, cultural, economic, political um, choices and, and forces that we're surrounded by. I, I was socialized to believe I was not pretty enough, good enough, perfect enough, um, as are thousands of young people were struggling with a mental health crisis among young people today, like me. And I wanted to be able to step outside of the four walls of a, of a hospital and really decry, identify, address the structural barriers to achieving health and achieving self-actualization. And that's why I decided to pursue this dual career in healthcare, but also public health and public policy. You know, it's such a pleasure to see you. I, I want to just ask you a question about your process, because Somebody could be looking at what you've done and, and just wonder, like, how in the heck does she do all those things? And, you know, it's such a broad range of areas and areas where you've gotten traction. So let me just, for example, what I was just wondering is, you know, you, you, of course, you've got these jobs. I mean, this major job at the White House and this job you're about to that you're starting or, or already started, you know, in New Jersey. Um, but how do you decide what problems that you want to solve? I mean, there's so many needs in the world. 
And, and then one of the things that's so impressive about your accomplishments is the way you bring people together. How he said, you know, empowering 30,000 people. It's one thing to say, this thing has gotten traction and, and really engaged a lot of people. It's hard to engage people, especially around something new. So I'm just wondering, like, can you tell a little bit about your process, where you decide to direct your energy? And then how do you go about enlisting people, motivating them and getting people on board? And then ultimately the people you're trying to help to get them engaged in ways that that so you can fulfill the promise that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, those are excellent questions. And I will caveat or rather preface uh, the response I offer with the very real concession that I'm still figuring out the answers. And a a lot of the progress, again, that I've made has been serendipitous. Uh, And some days I don't get it right. I'm not sure that I have mastered um, that that balance that you speak so generously of. But I'll try and answer your your question by saying that in terms of selecting what problems to solve, I have tried to look to the Japanese concept of ikigai. And I don't know if uh, you all are, are familiar with that, but it's, it's like a four-part Venn diagram. And it asks you to consider, one, what does the world need? Two, what are you good at? Three, what will you be paid for? And four, what do you love? What are you passionate about? And the concept calls upon you to identify and commit to something that can fulfill as many of those questions as possible. And that's what I have tried to look to in deciding what roles I assume. In terms of the problems that I addressed, I think, to be honest, like, When you serve in the president's administration, you address the problems that the president wants you to address. You are there to, I served on the Domestic Policy Council, to execute the president's agenda. And I tried to do that faithfully at the White House. I will try to do that faithfully in New Jersey uh, as a member of the administration of Governor Phil Murphy. And, And beyond that, it's you know, whatever makes me angry. When I was a 15-year-old, 16-year-old high school student, I wanted to create a sisterhood of change makers in my teenager's parlance so that no other girl would have to suffer the way I did, so that other young women would have a community of young women they could look to for support. The first organization I started was called Girls Helping Girls. And the absence of that for me, the struggle that my own family faced in both accessing quality, frankly, eating disorder care, and then overcoming the emotional, physical, psychological trauma that um, eating disorder recovery necessarily entails, uh, was infuriating for me. And I didn't want anyone else to go through that. When I um, decided to continue to do the work I was doing for global women's rights, I recognized that the first and most frequently violated basic human right for young women, for women generally from birth to motherhood to beyond, is quality health care. And that's extremely upsetting. And so uh, in my first organization, we used to offer a social change curriculum to, to young women. And the question I asked them was, what makes your blood boil? What, what kindles this like insatiable hunger to... to address the problem, make it better so that no one else has to go through it. Like any any problem that you are so passionate about that you can work the whole day and you like it just keeps you up at night, 
that's the problem you know that you have to solve because frankly, like these problems are all hard. They're intractable. Even the ones I'm working on now, like they're not going to be solved overnight. So you have to be committed to them. And so if you found something that just like really keeps you entranced in that way, then you know that's what you should focus on. Can you give our listeners a little understanding of what you've learned by working inside the White House, inside the executive branch of our government? Um, And also let our listeners know, I don't think we talked about it in the intro, but you've had a chance to work in state health, I think, in North Carolina under our incoming CDC director, Mandy Cohen. So you have experience at the state level. You've had this experience at the federal level. What are your thoughts about how the levers of government can be used to advance the objectives of better health for our population? That's a a great question, Howie. And I'll I'll say that working in the federal government, what have I learned? I've learned that there are really great, committed, dedicated public servants um, in this administration that are trying to do the right thing. And sometimes certain problems, as alluded to earlier, take longer to address than than others. Um, and to address those problems often also requires building consensus among a wide variety of, of people and special interests and uh, different offices and divisions and agencies of, of government. So things can take a little bit longer, but at the end of the day, People are there in the federal government because they believe in making life fairer and better for for all Americans, and their heart is in the right place. And I think it can be rare to belong to and work among kind of a community of individuals that are singularly united in in mission space, uh, as I enjoyed working in in the Biden-Harris administration. And so that element of public service, despite its other perhaps bureaucratic woes, was incredibly special. And to the extent that your students are listening to this, I would urge them, if possible, to take advantage of such an opportunity through an internship or fellowship to join the federal government, if only to taste of that sense of camaraderie and shared mission. Uh, in, In terms of your second question, which was how can, I think, the policymaking apparatus be leveraged to advance the public health agenda. I would say that I think health and public health is inherently political and democratizing health and improving public health requires remaking decades of public policy choices that have perpetuated racial inequity and disproportionately punished the poor. And so it is precisely by leveraging public policy, working in government, whether at the local, at the state or the federal level, that we can address these larger social forces that bring our patients back into the clinic, into the hospital over and over again. I think like what we see in the hospital are often the physiological manifestations of social woes. I'm just kind of preaching what one of the fathers of modern medicine, Rudolf Virchow, first kind of called, I think, social medicine in in the 19th century. But I I think one of the longest lasting um, interventions that we can look to um, to address these 
medical challenges we see in the healthcare setting is through public policy. And one of the silver linings, I think, of the COVID-19 pandemic is that it occasioned kind of an awakening in physicians who might otherwise have embraced the comfort afforded by the perhaps apolitical symbol of the white coat. Um, it, it induced a wait, an awakening in them to realize this fact and to speak up and, and speak out and, and advocate for the, the political and policy changes that would improve their patients' lives. So you finished your residency, but you did your residency very much during the pandemic. I mean, the peak of the pandemic coincided with much of your residency. And that's not an easy time, even if there's no pandemic. And yet you started doing a podcast during that time as well. Uh, and Harlan and I have now come to realize that a podcast is not merely sitting down for 45 minutes a week. Why did you make that a priority of your work at that time? And what did you learn from that experience? Hosting a podcast, producing a podcast, uh, we were a team of two, uh, is hard work. And kudos to both of you for, for maintaining this as long as you have. I, I realized that my co-residents and I were on the front lines of a once-in-a-century pandemic, and yet our voices were not really being heard or integrated in the types of conversations that were happening um, at both the hospital level and the national level in terms of how we should address this pandemic socially, medically, politically. And so I started um, the podcast actually in the form of a series of fireside chats, wherein I brought some of these experts, I cold emailed them, that I was seeing on nightly CNN from Dr. Fauci, to our mutual friend, Dr. Murthy, to Dr. Lena Wen. And I said, you know, you're having these conversations on live TV. You're having these conversations with one another. Why don't you come and have them with some of our frontline providers? And they gladly agreed. And um, I hosted a number of these, including with my now former boss, Ambassador Susan Rice, between these luminaries of public health and of politics um, and uh, residents, trainees, even faculty across Mass General and Brigham. And I realized these were such rich conversations. Why keep them contained to just the, the community of Mass General and Brigham? Why not spread them more widely? And it was actually one of um, my first podcast guests, uh, I won't say who, who recommended, in fact, encouraged me to translate this into a podcast. So with that, with that individual's help, um, I decided, you know what, let me, let me just give this a go. And it's not going to be perfect. It's not necessarily going to be professional, but let me try and share these conversations more, more broadly. And frankly, they served as a forcing function. I don't know how you feel, um, but to stay abreast of the developing issues and, uh, also cultivate kind of a perspective of my own on uh, potential solutions and paths forward, which inevitably helped me in, in my work subsequently with the, the Biden-Harris transition and, and, and the administration. So I'm very grateful for the experience and um, for the distraction, too, that afforded me from uh, often arduous COVID-19 clinical care. Uh, but it started really in this desire to, to bring some of these uh, elusive um, primetime TV conversations down to the ground level uh, with me and my, my trainee colleagues. 
Well, let me say that I'm grateful for our podcast because we get a chance to have someone like like you on. And uh, and by the way, this is uh, it is the reason our podcast is any good is because of Howie and Miranda and Inez and Sophia and and actually they they put in so much into this. Let me let me ask you kind of a parting question. If you were to give your younger self advice, what might that be based on where you are now? I'll just say two things. One, don't listen to the haters and and don't be afraid to be different. And at every stage of my journey from high school, when my parents uh, (laughs) refused to engage initially in in this work or to back me when I wanted to start my nonprofit, the first adult co-signer on my NGO bank account was my high school principal, to medical school when I was told by a senior administration official um, at Stanford that I was throwing my potential away and I shouldn't be doing what I was doing with the UN or the WHO or maintaining my entrepreneurial proclivities because no residency would want me, um, to residency when I was doing these podcasts and I used to get hate messages um, once I decided to translate my fireside chat into a podcast from other faculty, um, as well as co-residents who said, um, who do you think you are? You're just a resident starting this podcast. Like, why do you think anyone would want to listen to you? Or like, clearly you got too big for your britches. I would say there have been people who have doubted and denigrated at every step of the way, and there will always be those people. And I think it's important to just as tried as this is, listen listen to your gut. Find mentors and uh, people who believe in you and are willing to put put their faith in you and 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 hold on to them and hold on to that inner voice of your own that can give you the the courage and the conviction to commit to things that may seem unorthodox, maybe even ill advised at first glance, but can propel you in the direction longer term that you want to go. Because I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't listened to that voice and I hadn't found a small village of people who told me that was okay. Well, it, it is such a great privilege to have you on our podcast and to have you back um, so amazed with what you've already accomplished and what you will accomplish. And the people of New Jersey are very fortunate to have you fighting for them. And we're big fans. We believe in you. Of course, it's easy to say now because there's a lot to, but there was always a lot to believe in. That's for sure. Thank, Thank you, you both of you. Wow. That, that was a terrific interview. And that last part, wow. That's yeah. all I can say. You know, She's wonderful. Uh, amazing. Amazing. Now let, let's get to another favorite part of the podcast for me, which is to hear what's on your mind this week. Yeah. So, you know, as we've entered summer or about to enter summer, we're seeing the usual dramatic increase in motorcycle trauma. Um, you know, I see this every year as a radiologist in the emergency department. I see the imaging manifestations of rather disturbing trauma. Nothing is more humbling than to see an otherwise young and healthy person physically mangled and often worse by a single motor vehicular accident. Since the introduction of airbags, seat belts, anti-locking brakes, and other um, accommodations to cars, uh, 
we have actually seen car accidents contribute significantly less to our devastated trauma patient population. Uh, motor vehicle accidents, uh, deaths per capita are down almost 50% since 1969. And that figure looks even better if you look at it in terms of miles driven or cars on the road. But in absolute numbers, it's down 50%, mostly due to the innovations I mentioned, as well as better medical and surgical care. From 2007 until 2021 alone, motor vehicle deaths have been flat, but motorcycle deaths have increased by 25% on a per mile driven basis, now over 5,000 per year. I can't readily explain why, why this has increased, but I can tell our listeners that there is compelling evidence that helmets reduce the risk of death. The absolute level of protection varies by study, but 37 to 56% of deaths from motorcycle accidents could be prevented through wearing of adequate helmets. And deaths are not the only thing avoided. Helmet use is associated with decreased admissions to ICUs, decreased long-term uh, term morbidity, and decreased costs. 18 states have broad helmet mandates, and they are a motley crew of states. So New York, California, West Virginia, Alabama, Louisiana, among them. Three states, Illinois, New Hampshire, and Iowa have no mandates. And the rest of the states, including our home state of Connecticut, have mandates for select groups, generally under the age of 25 or under 18. So my libertarian sensibility would say that people should be allowed to wear a helmet or not and take risks or not. But that, that sensibility ceases to hold when your lack of a helmet becomes my problem. And the reality is, whether people realize it or not, much of healthcare spending comes from taxpayers. And when your excess risk taking impacts me, I'm allowed to at least be concerned or maybe even more about just your own well-being. Most of the time, the ability to change such behavior is limited because it intrudes on privacy or it's very costly. But in this case, a simple solution that has been tried and works in so many states seems a reasonable one to ask for. And I hope more states adopt helmet laws, including our own. What do you see about the parallels between this and, and the vaccine mandates? I mean, you know, there, there are some parallels here. And of course, you know, a lot of pushback on the mandates. Uh, I don't know. Do you see do you see this as a similar issue? It's really not similar now, but one could argue that at the very early stage of our vaccine rollout, it was absolutely an issue. When we first rolled out vaccines and the vaccines at that time during that variant was actually reducing transmission to some degree, you could argue that it was that it had real externalities, positive externalities that were keeping our hospitals from being overwhelmed and also reducing spread to people who might not have been able to get a vaccine yet or might not be allowed to get a vaccine or have a vaccine. We're in a very different place right now. It's hard to say that the vaccines have significant positive externalities now. They mostly protect the individual to a variable degree. And so it'd be very hard to argue that a COVID vaccine mandate is necessary. But if you look at 
childhood vaccinations, the parallels are very strong. They're very large. Uh, negative externalities associated with being unvaccinated, positive externalities with being vaccinated, and we should do everything we can to continue to have mandates, particularly on children, in order to prevent major outbreaks for uh, vaccine preventable let, disease. Let me just let me just jump in one second because I think, you, I, while very useful information, you're taking that as kind of like today, what should we do about vaccines? But I'm just wondering what the threshold is for society to mandate that somebody does something. What's that level of benefit. So take, for example, seatbelts. Yeah. Seatbelts save lives. But at the margin, the truth is the absolute benefit for anyone who seatbelts himself is really, really small. Yeah. Now, by the way, if we ban cigarettes, we would save millions and millions and millions of lives. But no one's prepared to tell people that if we banned alcohol, we would we would we would save millions and millions of lives. But we're not prepared to do that. Yeah. Now, you're saying we should we should formally tell people, no, but you should wear helmets. Now, what, where does the threshold tip yeah, no, about when the benefit is enough for us to do that? There's no perfect answer to that. And by the way, there's so many examples of that. Speed limits on highways, another example of that. Uh, we impose limits on certain populations. We don't on others. I would say seatbelts is one of the greatest public health successes, but one could argue that most of the benefits flow to the individual. And the reason why we started to impose those laws was in some ways to get manufacturers to put better seatbelts in. Um, but I, it's harder to make those arguments about why we do certain things when most of the gains are internalized, not externalized. Yeah, I think that, that our society is going to continue to struggle with this. And for example, the vaccine is large net positive, but lots of people saying I should be able to make my own choices. And then there is this question like you raised, how does my behavior affect other people and, and where do you, but I don't think we're being very consistent right now in society at a, at a certain threshold of net benefit. Anyway, lots lots more on this, but thanks so much for sharing it. It's a really, it, it, it's such an important topic and very, very relevant here in Connecticut, given the helmet laws or lack thereof. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and a podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu emba. Health and Veritas is produced at the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. And you know what makes this podcast great, Howie? I do. You know, it's Miranda Schaefer, our producer, Inez Giel, and Sophia Stump, our, our student research assistants. They, they're the ones who make this. 100%. Yeah. For sure. Thanks so much, Howie. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Arnold. Talk to you soon.